Before we get started, I want to tell you about my new book. It's called The New Mobility Handbook, Rethinking How We Get Around Cities. The book builds on my work on the Smarter Cars podcast here over the last three years as we've explored autonomous vehicles, ride hail, and then micromobility and the impact of all of these new technologies on cities. New mobility options are incredibly popular and can encourage multimodal travel in ways that public transit has not. But these options have also created new challenges for cities that can't be solved by technology alone. We need to combine these new mobility modes with urbanist policies to keep our roads moving. Transportation in cities will not be an either-or solution. We don't have to choose between ride services, bikes and scooters, or getting everyone to ride the bus. It's not either or, it's and. We're going to need all of these technologies working together to rethink how we get around cities. The New Mobility Handbook offers a grand unifying theory of sorts for how we can have the benefits and convenience of new mobility options while also meeting city goals to encourage multimodal travel and reduce traffic and pollution. If you're not familiar with the principles behind urbanist policies like congestion pricing, transit priority, reduction in parking, and reallocation of street space, the New Mobility Handbook provides an introduction to these policies and how they can be used together with new mobility technologies to improve transportation in cities. The New Mobility Handbook is available on Amazon in paperback and Kindle versions. I hope you enjoy the book. This is Smarter Cars, a podcast about autonomous vehicles and the future of transportation. Welcome to Season 5. This is your host, Michelle Kairouz. In this episode, we're talking with Evangelo Sumudis, a venture capital investor at Synapse Partners and an author. We talk about the future of transportation, what he sees happening in the industry, and his new book, Transportation Transformation. Evangelos, welcome back to the podcast. Pleasure to be here and thank you very much for the invitation again. I think the last time we spoke was in 2017 and we were talking about your first book, The Big Data Opportunity in Our Driverless Future. And now you have a new book out. Perhaps you could start by telling us a little bit about your book and, and what the main thesis is. This is my second book. In, in the first book, I took a, a very technology-driven approach, given that all my work, including my investment work, has been around data and AI. This time around, while I tried to uh, remain consistent on the technology front, I I broaden my horizon, you can say, and the, a much broader topic of, of how urban transportation uh, needs to look. And, and the overall thesis of the book is that in this new mobility, the way we envision it, uh, cities must take a, a leadership role. And the three constituencies that contribute to urban mobility, uh, and that is automakers, mobility services companies, and public transportation systems, cities with their public transportation systems, must really collaborate in order to make this new mobility a, a reality. But in, before they can collaborate, or in order for them to collaborate, they need to transform in a variety of ways. And that collaboration and the transformation, the collaboration Will, will give rise to new forms of value and, and new uh, value exchange models. So, so that's the overall thesis. Great. And why don't you give us the full title of the book? 
It's transportation transformation. Great. I will put a link in the show notes so folks can uh, read the book and we'll dig into some of your, your thoughts on it as we go here. It seems like, as you point out, the the transformation that you envision really involves a collaboration among lots of different pieces of the transportation puzzle. It seems like it requires both policy and business model changes when we think about how to put all of these pieces together. But why don't we start maybe taking a step back with some of the pieces. Let's start with autonomous vehicles I know going back to 2016, we've really had a lot of investment and hype around the autonomous vehicle space. A lot of people feel we're in the Gartner cycle trough of disillusionment at the moment. How are you feeling about the development of autonomous vehicles? Are you optimistic about the technology? So let me put my investor hat uh, on as I answer these questions and say that like in every other space, the investment pattern in autonomous vehicles is similar to what we've seen in many other technology areas. Uh, first, you have a uh, you see investment across many startups and large corporations. Call this kind of peanut butter approach, right? You're, you're putting small investments in many different companies and area subsectors. Now, over time as the size of the overall necessary investment becomes evident. And, and I think in the last year, uh, we've seen more and more both startups and corporations realizing that uh, this is going to take much more money than they thought, and it will take much longer time than they thought. As, as that starts to become evident, you now go into a, a consolidation uh, phase. Uh, during that phase, by the way, you start seeing the, the initial leaders uh, emerge. So I, I think that right now, rather than calling it trough of disillusionment, I, I would call it the, the consolidation phase where the reality of uh, the realities of what it will mean to field autonomous vehicles are starting to become really evident. And the companies that are serious about pursuing that uh, are making the, the necessary uh, accommodations. In some cases, like we've seen with GM, they take outside investments, they form partnerships. In, in other cases, like we've seen in the case of Zooks, they, they, the companies get acquired. Okay, but, but I think that, that's the phase that we're in. It's still this primordial soup, as I had written in one in an earlier piece with uh, my collaborator, Stephen uh, Zeff. So OEMs and, and mobility uh, companies that have invested in, into autonomous vehicles, they realize that this is going to take longer and not every one of these companies can stomach uh, these investments. So I, I think what is, I, I'm still very optimistic about the contribution that autonomous vehicles can make. I've been saying for a long time that the projections that many companies, including many of our own portfolio companies, were making were way too optimistic. I think it will, it will take some time and maybe with a pandemic, it will be delayed even more. But I think it's autonomous vehicles will happen. I also think it is important to examine what are the more appropriate uh, use cases for them to, to happen. 
So I think the general thought in the press has been using autonomous vehicles in a ride-hailing kind of Uber-type service is incredibly difficult in city centers. And so we'll see more of a highway use case, autonomous trucking and delivery and some other use cases before we might see autonomous vehicles in ride services in cities. Do you think that's right? And is that necessarily a suggestion that it won't happen in services like Uber or Lyft or simply that it's down further down the road? Uh, this is a very good question. So first of all, I think that the, the robotaxi use case has been promoted the most by press, by, by companies. And I don't think that this was the right way to, to think about the contribution that autonomous vehicles can make. I should also say that, as I mentioned, as I point in the book, for me, new mobility is not only about passenger transportation, but it's also about goods delivery. Goods, maybe packages, maybe groceries, maybe prepared foods. So, so when you think about urban transportation, you really need to be thinking about both of these major components, okay? So now, with that in mind, I believe that uh, goods delivery, whether it is last mile delivery, whether it is middle, what's now being called middle mile delivery, may uh, for for urban settings may be a use will be a use case that will be uh, explored and exploited a lot faster than the robotaxi use case. And and obviously long haul delivery. It's, it's going long-haul logistics is going to be even more important for the short-term adoption. So I, I think we need to be looking beyond the, the robotaxi case in order to see the successes that these technologies uh, are going to have. The last point I wanted to make is that, again, when we think of robotaxi, it's not only about the passenger transportation within, uh, within cities, but we're also expecting what I've been calling speed of traffic autonomy. We need to start paying a lot more attention to low speed autonomy, right? And I think that low speed autonomy can be used for uh, the transportation of people in certain settings and be successful a lot faster than it would be the, 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 the robotaxi use case. So I, I think that we, will, we have the opportunity and we will see many successes of autonomous vehicles over the next decade that may not involve robotaxi, but we should not feel uh, any worse about these successes than we would have felt had robotaxis uh, succeeded in the timeline that we were anticipating. Well, let's talk about ride services like Uber and Lyft. As you point out, we may not see autonomous vehicles in those services right away, but what is your view of the role uh, of ride services and more generally the idea of transportation as a service? When Uber first came out, the promise that was made was that everyone was going to sell their car. We were only going to use ride services to get around and that was going to be better for cities and better for everyone. And then we had this 
pushback and, and cities and urbanists were saying, look, Uber and Lyft are causing all this traffic. There's deadhead miles. And God forbid, when they're autonomous and they're cheap, it's going to be even worse. So maybe everybody should just drive and park their car. How are you thinking about ride services as a whole, whether autonomous or not, and what the role would be in the future of transportation? As I say, as I point in the book, I, I don't believe that these transport, urban transportation models that uh, we have been seeing and the ones that I'm discussing in the book will be deployed, will be realized uniformly around the world. With that in mind, I think what we have seen, particularly here in the United States, is, and, and maybe even to a lesser degree in Europe and, and in Asia, is as these uh, mobility services, on-demand mobility services emerge, they were, they were operating in a, a, a silos. And, and essentially in, in cities today, I will claim with very few exceptions, we have three silos. We have the, the silo of privately owned vehicles, which, you know, the, with automakers having the great interest in that, in, in seeing that uh, continue and expand even more. You have the silo of mobility services companies, right? The, the services that they provide, be it again for people transportation or goods uh, delivery. And then you have the silo of public transportation. And different cities obviously have different public, transport, uh, public transportation systems of, of different quality. Uh, this cannot continue, right? I, I think that cities are starting to realize that, people are starting to realize that. And as I say in the book, number one, this is why that will necessitate the, for these constituencies to start collaborating. I'm not advocating that we will, that we will have no privately owned vehicles going forward. But I am seeing that in urban settings, if done right, there will be less and less the need to have multiple vehicles and even the private vehicles that we have to be using them with the frequency that, that we have been today. So I think what going forward, I think you will see uh, the services companies transitioning, transforming from the, the role of right coordination that they have today to a role of fleet operators. And fleet operators will, and as fleet operators, they will have the both a, a better ability to control their business models and, and their economics, but also I think they will have a much better opportunity to control the overall experience that they provide to the consumer, uh, be it experience for package, for goods delivery or, or for, for the transportation uh, of people. And once you make that, transfer, that, that transformation, that transition, now you can start thinking about how many vehicles do I need in order to provide a particular level of service in a particular city? I, I, I think you see Waymo, for example, going through that type of analysis as they determine how many vehicles do I order and where do I deploy them around the world and, and how frequent, how what is the timeline that I'm using for that deployment? I think that by and large, the mobility services companies and the automakers and the cities have not engaged in that broad conversation or discussion to determine how this is going to happen. But, but I've seen from, from my research for the book that in other parts of the world, this conversation has already started. And you know, some of these constituencies do not like it, 
but I think it will, it will be necessary if we're going to have livable cities. It's an interesting point that ride services would need to shift from being just a, a network that connects drivers and riders to an actual fleet operation where they own the fleet vehicles and deploy them perhaps in ways that are more efficient. It seems like if they ultimately would like to use autonomous vehicles in a fleet down the road, they're going to have to make that transition at some point in order to have autonomous vehicles as fleet assets. So I I think you're suggesting that perhaps you would make that transition even now without autonomy. And I suppose if at least in the United States, governments are forcing Uber and Lyft to treat their drivers as employees, that even kind of further facilitates that type of transformation. Is that what you're thinking? Absolutely. And I talk about that uh, in in the book extensively. And by the way, it doesn't mean that you will see fleet operation in every city. You may see in some cities, a mobility services companies being exclusively a fleet operator in other cities being uh, using a hybrid model where in some regions it operates as a fleet operator in others it uses other as a as a ride coordinator and then there might be situations when you have an appropriate agreement with the city that you will continue operating like you're operating uh, today The, the point though is that these need to be deliberate decisions as opposed to these arbitrary decisions that, that we, we have to date. The last point to make is that for, for me, fleet operator doesn't mean that you own the vehicles. If you look at, and I, I've done extensive research in the, on the airline industry as I, as I was writing the book, the airlines own a, a very small percent of the planes that they operate. They, they lease a lot of them. They work with financing companies in order to get a, a number of planes and put them in their fleet and, and operate them for an extended period of time. But it doesn't mean that, that they own uh, 100% of the fleet they operate. And, and I think that, again, the, these ground transportation companies will need that offer on-demand mobility services will need to, to start thinking along those lines. The rental industry, which is another industry I re- researched quite a bit, offers also some uh, ownership models, some operating models that companies that offer on-demand mobility services like ride-hailing or, or microtransit will need to, to start thinking about and, and adopting. Today, they, they, they did not want to, to do this because they want to present themselves as strictly digital platforms, but, but I don't think that that's the way to move forward. One development we've seen in transportation since you and I spoke last is the micromobility industry. And the basic premise with electric scooters and electric bikes has been that most people would like to move around the city by themselves, sort of one person, maybe two people together. And that the constraints of road geometry, as many urbanists call it, suggests that it's better to move one person in a very small vehicle, such as an electric scooter, or perhaps in the future, a small pod of some sort, than to move one person in your typical Uber vehicle, regular size car, SUV. 
How are you thinking about micromobility and the different form factors as part of this overall landscape? I, I think that micromobility has a very important role to play in the future of urban transportation. And I think it will depend, of course, on weather patterns, on urban landscape, on population characteristics, on the condition of the transportation infrastructure. And depending on those, micromobility will be more or less important and will also dictate the kind of vehicles that, that are being used. So, for example, in one of my portfolio companies, we have looked very extensively at the Renault's Twiggo out of France, right? Two, two-seater, almost like a, an enclosed motorcycle, if you will. In Paris, uh, Citroën also has a very small pod-like vehicle that they, they recently uh, introduced. So uh, I think there's going to be a lot of experimentation in that area. Now, depending on the type of, of vehicle that we use about micromobility, and, and today when we talk about micromobility, we tend to think about scooters, mopeds, bikes, and, and e-bikes. I think that for those, I have a little bit of a skepticism on whether the companies that offer them have a, a long-term future. And the reason I'm, I'm saying this is because what I'm seeing is that individuals that embrace this type of modalities and embrace them on an everyday use, they realize that it's much more economical to go buy a, a bike or a scooter rather than having to rent one every time they, they need it. So what the companies that offer these modalities as a business, they will need to determine whether they can make a business with the more occasional users. In other words, the users who are not willing to go and spend two, $300, $400 to buy a, a new bicycle or a good scooter, and they may be using these modalities on an infrequent basis, in which case they will not see the need for spending that type of money. So I think that these companies need to do much deeper analysis because I do not believe that long-term, even as micromobility becomes more popular, we will see increased usage for the vehicles of these companies. Let's turn to the final piece of the transportation puzzle. As you mentioned, public transit here in light of the global pandemic in 2020, we've seen public transit use decline as much as 90% in some cities. And there's a real fear that riders are not going to come back, that enclosed spaces feel more dangerous with the virus than open air. And public transit, while getting some bailout money, certainly hasn't gotten enough and is facing some real financial problems. How do you think that public transit in large cities will fit into the transportation landscape in the future? And should agencies start thinking about different business models to adapt going forward? What should public transit agencies be thinking about at this point? I think transportation evolves, urban transportation evolves over a long period of time. So I think that it will be a mistake to try to draw permanent conclusions about behaviors that we are seeing today and we may continue to see for another year or so. But I can tell you that we cannot afford in any city of meaningful size 
to give up on public transportation. I, I cannot think that, let's say, in a city like Manhattan or in, in a city like London or in a city like, I don't know, Shanghai, that people give up on public transportation and all of a sudden they, they start to, to drive their own vehicles, even if they could afford uh, to, to buy those vehicles, which is not always the case, right? I mean, you have to think of not only the person who, who has a couple of vehicles and they can afford to, to use ride hailing for any time they want to, but you also have to think about the person whose only means of transportation is public transportation, right? So we cannot give up on public transportation. I also do not think that you can be thinking of public transportation in the same way that you're thinking of, of taxis, right? We can go from any place to any place. So this is why I'm advocating that we need to start bringing these three constituencies and the modalities they offer all together and see how they can provide a coordinated future. So public transportation I think we'll always have a role maybe to move large numbers of people across distances. I think it will be necessary to be multimodal. And I think that cities outside the U.S. recognize that. You see the construction, the public transportation construction that is going on in Berlin, in Shanghai, in Singapore, uh, in Paris, in Copenhagen, on and on and on. Here in the United States, we, we do not have a very good approach to public transportation. I mean, look at a couple of years ago, maybe less than that now, Nashville rejected uh, a $2 billion initiative for building uh, light rail and a couple of other realities. We'll see how Los Angeles, that has taken a very ambitious program, how they fare over the next few decades that this program is supposed to uh, unfold over. But I think that public transportation has a big role to play, but it cannot be viewed as a silo, as I've been saying. It needs to come together with other, other modalities and, and other ways of, of transporting. And I should close this part by saying that I'm very encouraged by some of these partnerships that are starting to emerge, even in U.S. cities, between companies like Uber and, and Lyft and public transportation agencies. I think that's the beginning, and I think the next conversation is going to be who controls that collaboration. But again, it's a step in the right direction. It seems like one avenue for public transit to take is to retrench back a bit. And we're seeing this in San Francisco today, not by choice, but of necessity in light of COVID. But to retrench back to have public transit serving major backbones and to try to think about how to deliver people to those major routes from places that are slightly off the major route, perhaps using first mile, last mile solutions like Via or Uber or micromobility options in order to make sure you can provide fast and reliable bus and, and light rail service in the places where it can run rather than spreading the dollars all over the city and perhaps having a bunch of other routes that are not well populated and take a long time. So I think public transit agencies are trying to figure out how to get the most 
bang for their buck in light of the the challenging circumstance we're in. And sometimes those challenging circumstances necessitate innovation. But one thing we've seen is this question of mobility as a service. And I, I know Berlin has done this. And we're seeing the idea that you might put together public transit with a certain number of rides on an Uber or Lyft or micromobility devices as like a monthly subscription. What are your thoughts about mobility as a service subscription type solutions? So first of all, let me add something that you made a very important point uh, a minute ago about first mile and last mile solutions and, and again, the, the role of, of other potentially can, can play in collaborating with public transportation agencies. And I would say that my firm is participating in many of these conversations outside the U.S. And we've done, in fact, data analyses for companies to help them uh, and for cities to help them understand how people move right, within, within the city and, and what will be a, a potentially efficient and effective ways of changing the routing, maybe in collaboration with, uh, with some of these services. So there's a lot of thinking that has started, and I think that we have the means to provide input to, to that thinking, which I think is something that several years ago we, we didn't have, right? And so that's just the point that we made earlier. Now, with regards to uh, mobility as a service, again, we were talking earlier about autonomous vehicles, and, and I think that mobility as a service has been misconstrued, has been marketing has presented it in, in the wrong way. To me, mobility as a service is not only about getting a subscription and having you know, a, a, a payment capability from a mobile application that allows you to select certain things because that can become very overwhelming. But there are certain prerequisites. If you're going to offer mobility as a service, there's many prerequisites that, again, an urban environment needs to satisfy. There is the instrumentation of the transportation infrastructure. There is the understanding of who is going to be offering what and where. So most of the cities, and particularly here in the U.S., we have not done that type of, we have not satisfied this kind of prerequisites. So to me, it is not unreasonable to, to be seeing both consumers becoming overwhelmed and companies not being particularly successful. There are a number of startups that have tried to go under the umbrella of mobility as a service and they have failed, right? They, they have not even they have been acquired or they have gone out of business. When a metropolitan area becomes serious about mobility as a service, they need to start thinking not only about the last component, which is this payments component or and the business model that's associated with it, maybe a subscription or maybe transaction-based, but they really need to understand what else needs to be done before they can offer something like this effectively. So, for example, talking earlier about artificial intelligence, you could think of a service that plans the entire transportation path of a, of a consumer on a day-by-day -day basis. I have an example like this in, in my book, through a combination of intelligent systems, data that is coming from an instrumented infrastructure, from mobility providers, from other sources, you can create such a plan. And now once I have such a plan, once I'm able to, to support it through my technology, through my infrastructure, through my modalities, now I can offer it, now I can 
experiment or I can offer a variety of business models around it. But, but mobility as a service is not only about the, the subscription and, and having a, a mobile application. It involves a lot more that I don't think we have examined properly. That's an interesting point. You're basically saying we should decide for policy and time efficiency and other reasons, what would be the best way for different people to get around at different points in their day or holistically across the day, as you give as an example in your book, and then figure out the business model to support that or, or how to pay for it. Let's talk about some of the business models. I think you have some really interesting ideas in your book. You basically acknowledge that many of the mobility service providers, whether it is Uber or Lyft or micromobility shared providers, face the challenge of being a low margin business. That it's very difficult to make money providing these mobility services. What are your thoughts for ways that these companies can evolve their business models in order to make them more sustainable as businesses? So one of the points that I'm making and and why I talk about value chains in my book is because I think we need to move away from transactional models where the only form of value that is being exchanged is monetary, is is dollars and cents, right? So I I think we need to to think more broadly. And, And one of the areas, because of my deep expertise in that, from one of the areas that I examine is the role of data. And I say that we need to start thinking uh, a lot more aggressively in terms of who are the rightful owners of that data, you know, because there is data, for example, that the vehicle manufacturer needs to, must own and owns. There's other data that the mobility services provider uh, owns. And then there's data that the consumer owns, right? And and there might be other types of data that that have different owners. Each of these type of data has different value. And and the value is dictated by the users of that data, not only by the producer of the data, but also by the user of that data. So we need to engage in, in this broader conversation to understand what are the values and who owns what. The next point I'm making is that a number of these models will be loyalty-based. So in other words, whereas today, my loyalty is to a particular service or to a particular automaker is not rewarded. I'll give you a couple of examples. If I buy the same brand of vehicle time after time, that OEM, that automaker, even though they know that I that they have me for a long time, they don't offer me anything special. I'm, maybe I'm offered an incentive, but it's the same incentive that is being offered to the first-time buyer of that brand. Similarly, if I go to mobility services, if I can pre-book, let's say, a ride-hailing ride a day in advance or even a week in advance, I don't get any benefit, any price benefit from, from that mobility provider. So my point is that loyalty needs to start playing another important role in this equation and will dictate certain models. And finally, I think as we've seen with the use of the internet, there might be situations where advertising models can also play an important role either to defray certain costs or in exchange for a charge. So imagine, for example, that I'm driving from Palo Alto to the San Francisco airport, you know, a distance of whatever, about 20 miles, 15, 20 miles. During that, during that time I'm in this vehicle, 
the service provider may have many opportunities to offer me things because they know my destination. They know, most likely they may even know where, where I'm going in that destination and, and what I'm doing. So, so there are, again, we need to be exploring a lot more of those opportunities rather than just relying on the transactional models where the only thing that is exchanged is, is the currency. It's interesting. You mentioned in, instead of a transaction model, there could be subscription models as well as loyalty points, which would be sort of like an airline miles type thing where the more dollars you spend on Uber, you get points both that can be spent directly on Uber as well as partner points perhaps that get you a, a Starbucks coffee or things like that. And then you're talking about using the data for both advertising and passenger commerce, right? Like they're going to sell you uh, a sandwich that you can take on your flight because they know you're going to the airport and you pay for that through your Uber app while you're en route to the airport and then it's provided to you at the curb when you get there or, or something like that. I, I think there's a lot of hesitancy right now around data, you know, with everything that's happened with Facebook and a lot of other criticisms around advertising based models, where you are in the world and your transportation, your data location is considered to be very sensitive data. And so how do you think that would work? How do you think folks would react to the idea that so much data is being collected and used to monetize? So again, should make two points. For me, data is just one form of one medium that has value, okay? And I was trying to, to give examples in the book on both what other forms of value we have in the context of transportation beyond just the exchange, the currency exchange, okay? The second thing is that uh, you're absolutely right. There are certain risks if uh, relating to the use of data if we do it without any, if we start using that data without any consideration and without any transparency. What I'm advocating in the book is that we need to understand, we need to start defining who are the rightful owners of the variety of data that is uh, generated and consumed in the course of transportation and determine what, what value that has and, and to whom. There are people on the internet that do not allow any of their data to be captured and they prefer to obviously to pay for the use of the services that they have and others are okay by using using data, having corporations use their data in exchange for something free. I think that it has taken us a long time to to understand what is really happening under the context of internet usage and, and even to this day we're learning more and more uh, things. My hope is that if we choose to utilize data as a form of value that is exchanged among the partners in these, these new value chains, we will use the, the lessons that we've learned from the internet and make the right decisions. But I am pointing the fact that there is value to the data in the same way that there is value to the loyalty in the same way that there is value to the behaviors that people are, are exhibiting rather than just the uh, however much money they're spending in order to go from point A to point B or however much money they're spending 
in order to have a good deliver to their door. One of the things, I, just to close this part of your question, in the book I introduced this, this concept of transportation wallet. And in fact, on my blog, more recently, I wrote an additional piece because some of the organizations that my firm is working with have asked me to, to start putting even more detail around that. They, they like the concept. And to me, the, the transportation wallet is, is all about understanding on whether it is on a consumer-by-consumer basis, on a segment-by-segment, on a city-by-city, doesn't really matter, what modalities and how much money people use on a daily basis in order to be transported, as well as how many trips they don't do because they have goods delivered to them. So, for example, if I don't take a trip to the grocery store and I have instead groceries delivered to my home, that transaction has to be part of the transportation wallet because that gives insight to where value is provided and what what trips are not done and what they are being done. Because again, if I have, for example, goods delivered to me, I may expect that delivery service may be doing a lot more coordination and be delivering goods to more than one destination, right? So again, there are, it's part of the new thinking that I believe needs to take place as we consider the future of transportation. One piece of the transportation puzzle that seems to have a declining role in the future as you're thinking about it is the automotive OEMs. What role do you see automotive manufacturers having as we move forward? Should they be verticalized in combined with mobility services or fit in in some other way? Or should they be changing their business models? How how do you think about the future for automotives? Of the three constituencies that I discuss in my book, I I would say I feel the least optimistic about OEMs. And and I see OEMs as being at at a crossroads. And, And we've seen the actions that they have taken over the past four or five years as being indicative of that quandary that they feel that they are. Some of them try, have tried to enter the mobility services space. Uh, others, they, they try to develop uh, autonomous, I mean, like GM, for example, uh, try to develop autonomous vehicles. And, and others try to do both. I mean, if you look at GM, they, with, with services like Maven, they are a mobility services operator. And with services like Cruise, they, for the time being, they're developing advanced autonomous vehicles and maybe in the future Cruise and Maven may come together where we will have in other words GM offering mobility services using autonomous vehicles. So I think to a great extent the next few years will be very telling for where OEMs go. They Some of them choose not to transform at all. They may end up uh, becoming just manufacturing operations and in, in that case, they may compete with other companies that are in the manufacturing business without having to do anything with the design aspect of, of the vehicle. Others may become providers of advanced vehicles, automated or autonomous, and which they offer both to consumers, but also to, to fleets. So I, I think a number of them may end up uh, 
focusing on just a, a small number of markets. I mean, we see, for example, Ford and GM here in the U.S. are retrenching from many of the markets that they used to serve five, ten years ago. We see companies like PSA acquiring and and trying to excel as as manufacturers of, of, of vehicles and providing and doing that at scale. In other words, providing better economics because they have they have the scale. But I think the the next ten years, in my mind, will be extremely telling. And of course, regulation uh, will be a, a great pressure point. I mean, you see what's happening in Europe with emissions uh, and the emissions regulation, and and what type of investments that ne- those regulations necessitate the OEMs operating those geographies to make, and and the impact, of course, that those investments have to other initiatives that, that these OEMs had, had undertaken not too long ago. So you're a venture capital investor. Based on your views of the transportation landscape going forward, uh, what kinds of new companies are you looking to invest in? How are you thinking about investment in this space? We continue to, to look at companies and invest in, in early stage startups that provide AI-based software solutions that addressed many of the problems that uh, we discussed today, but not only transportation-related problems. So we we have invested in in startups that focus on the financial services industry, for example. But uh, we remain we remain focused on how AI can be used for for manipulating, managing data, extracting insights from, from data in order to help uh, corporations. So we, we don't invest in consumer models. We, we only invest in enterprise models and we only invest in, in models where software, AI software is the core IP. Uh, so we believe that this approach not unlike what has happened a couple of decades ago with software as a service and cloud computing, we believe AI will continue to be a defining IP to address many enterprise problems. So we have a very active investment mandate in that area. Great. Well, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. I enjoyed uh, reading your book and I enjoyed our conversation. Thank you very much for having me and thank you for the great questions. These are great topics. <laughs> Terrific. We'll talk soon. Thanks again to Evangelist for joining us. You can find the show notes for this episode and all of our season five episodes on our new publication on Substack. That's smartercars.substack.com. If you're enjoying the show, please leave us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.